All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Friday morning show for you today, and we start today with the federal government's mini-budget yesterday, officially known as the Fall Economic Update. Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland warning Canadians here a recession is possible, but she says the Canadian economy doing better than many others. Have a listen to the Finance Minister here speaking yesterday. Canada's economic growth has been the strongest in the G7, stronger than the United States, stronger than the United Kingdom, stronger than Germany, stronger than France, stronger than Italy or Japan. Okay, Christian Freeland speaking yesterday. The official opposition, though, not impressed. Here's federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev. This inflationary scheme triples, triples, triples the tax on home heat, gas, and groceries, and adds $20 billion of inflationary spending that will drive up the cost of living, and we will vote against this inflationary spending. Okay, we've got an awesome panel here to discuss it for you now, both sides of it. Randeep Sarai, Liberal MLA, Surrey Centre. Very pleased to welcome him back. Randeep, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Also on the line, Carrie Lynn Finley, Conservative MP, South Surrey, White Rock. Carrie Lynn, thank you for coming on today. Good to hear from you, Mike. Okay, we got two Surrey MPs here uh, going head to head. Okay, Randeep, let me go to you first. The uh, the finance minister yesterday warning that a recession is possible. Canadians should buckle up for that. But she also had some targeted help for some Canadians in a tough economy. Uh, give me your sales pitch here on this economic plan that was outlined yesterday. Sure. Uh, look, we, we all know Canadians, along with uh, millions around the world, are going through tough times uh, due to the international crisis, uh, whether it be Ukraine uh, supply chain issues. So we're giving targeted support, uh, uh, targeted help for workers. Uh, those with the Canada Workers' Benefits are the lowest affected. They'll get over $4 billion dollars. Uh, They'll be the biggest news, I think, a lot for students. Uh, uh, student tuition, student, federal student loans will now permanently have no interest on them charged. So you're only paying back the exact amount board. It'll help an average a student $500 a year in interest. This is a huge boom. They also don't have to pay anything back until they start making at least $40,000. So this is, again, targeted for those that are just getting out of school, having to pay uh, interest payments on their loans. Uh, very targeted, very specific. Uh, then for businesses, uh, we are matching the uh, tax credits that the U.S. is doing in the Inflationary um, Tax Act that they have put up for it, which businesses have asked for. These are for zero emission, uh, non-emitting energy, heat and energy storage. They'll get 30%. This has been applauded now by student unions. It's being applauded okay. by the business community. Uh, so this is targeted support for those that need it, along with our Affordability Act. Okay, Carrie Lynn Finley, why are the Conservatives uh, saying they're going to vote against all this stuff? Because the rhetoric coming out of the federal government goes directly against what Canadians are living and feeling every day. We have a cost-of-living crisis. It's been created by out-of-control government spending. Trudeau's inflationary deficits, which now are around half a trillion dollars, have sent more dollars chasing fewer goods. You know, we don't just say just inflation for uh, as a kind of a, a banner 
the reason we talk about just inflation is because so much of it is homegrown. And as my colleague just said, they like to say, oh, it's a global problem, as though we don't have any control. But we do. So that goes from just inflation to just incompetence. Mark Carney, who's a former Bank of uh, Canada governor and the current governor, have both said that we have high domestic inflation. The COVID fiscal supports went on far too long. It's led to a rapid surge in inflation. And here we have a mini-budget that talks about another $40 billion in new spending. They don't get it. Randeep Sarai, what do you say to that? The funny thing is this is all the same BS we hear, which is no no actual plan, but just target those, say, no, we shouldn't have dental for people for children 12 and under, that's going to cause inflation. Oh, no, don't give uh, financial support to students uh, to pay their student loans. Uh, Don't forgive their interest. That's what they're saying. Don't give them $490 because that'll cause inflation. So we should help the gas and oil and gas industry, but we should not help students. We shouldn't give a GST rebate to those 11 million families that are needing it. We shouldn't give it to those seniors. That's what they voted against. That's what they're going to vote against again in this procedure. So there's no, it's all hot rhetoric. Countries like the UK and the US didn't do as much financial support for individuals, and their inflation is higher than Canada's. So the, the talk that they're saying doesn't add up. We have the lowest inflation out of the G7. We have 400,000 people additionally working from pre-pandemic levels. Our economy has actually grown 3% from the time before the pandemic. So the resources and the supports we're doing are actually working. Yes, okay. it's a little bit tougher right now. And we have to help those that are going to need the most help. Carrie Lynn Finley. If you ask the average Canadian, are these policies working? They're going to tell you no. When they go to the grocery store and they look at the upcoming tax hikes on top of where they are right now, interest rates spiking, mortgages being triggered, home heating fuel for those who who use that kind of, uh, particularly those who use oil in Atlantic Canada and a million people in Ontario and some people in northern BC, they are not going to be able to turn their heat on this winter because this government wouldn't even give a small exemption for home heating fuel. They They would rather see some senior on limited income who has to heat their home with home fuel as a polluter. We do have a plan and we keep talking about it. Stop the taxes and stop the spending. There should be no new taxes. We shouldn't have to see a tripling of the carbon tax. Not at this time. We cannot afford this. It should be a cancelling of those tax hikes. It should be not taking out more from source deductions on January 1st from people whose disposable income has gone way down. And ministers, if they want to spend more money, they should match it with an equivalent saving, not add, add, add to domestic spending by government. Okay, speaking to Liberal MP Randeep Sarai, Conservative MP Carrie Lynn Finley. Randeep, what do you say to the calls from the Conservatives to cancel uh, scheduled increases in the carbon tax, uh, payroll deductions for EI? Uh, what, how do you respond to that? Well, what they want is they, when the oil price is low, they complain to Alberta's oil price is low, and they blame the federal government for that. When the oil price goes up because of international measures, they blame the price on taxes or carbon taxes. Their answers are all about uh, cutting spending, but what do they want? They don't want the single mother to choose between, they want her to choose between food and giving dental. They want a senior to be 
choosing whether they can pay rent or getting a GST rebate. They're choosing between a student having to pay interest payments and start paying their payments back before they even have a job versus having that ability to get a job and be able to help. So we're targeting those that need it. They don't want it. They want to give tax breaks to billionaires. They want to get tax oh, breaks to the oil companies. We want to give targeted support for those that need it. And they voted against it every single time. They should Very look at their track record. They still aren't giving anything targeted support for those that need it. They, there is no plan by the conservatives, and they should address that. Carrie Lynn Finley, go ahead. Well, I'm very disappointed that my colleague is basically choosing to buttress the NDP Liberal costly coalition with that kind of nonsense about breaks to billionaires. That is ridiculous. What we care about is the average Canadian family. Inflation is at a 40-year high. All Canadians are paying more for essentials like gas, groceries, and home heating. Our interest rates are increasing at the fastest rate in decades. So we're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars eating into Canadians' paychecks because of inflation and because of the policies of this government. The PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, and other economic commentators have said that between 40 to 50 percent of the deficits we see and the problems we're in had nothing to do with covid had absolutely nothing to do with helping people during COVID or helping okay. people get out of COVID. We're here because this government cannot help itself from high spending, high taxes. They can go to London and our prime minister can stay in a hotel room that costs $7,000 a night. He spent in four nights on himself at taxpayers' expense, the okay. same as some people earn in a whole year. Okay, we'll have to leave it there, Randy. I know you'd like to (laughs) reply to that, but I think we've had a a good, fair, and balanced discussion. I want to thank both of you for coming on today. I'm very grateful to you both. Randeep Sarai, Liberal MP, Surrey Centre. Thank you, Randeep. Carrie Lynn Finley, Conservative MP, South Surrey, White Rock. Thank you, Carrie Lynn. Let's talk about no-fault auto insurance in British Columbia and how that's working out for people so far. We've had this system in place for around a year in British Columbia now. This is a dramatic change of how auto insurance operates in British Columbia now. Uh, drivers or people involved in collisions who are injured uh, losing the right to sue in many cases for pain and suffering. Uh, in return, on the other side, the government says that has allowed ICBC to reduce auto insurance premiums, cutting out the lawyers in the middle of this it was one of the primary goals. And the government said they would save a lot of money and put that money toward services and care for people who are injured in auto collisions. Got Aaron Sutherland standing by from the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Now, have a listen to this here now. I think for people who have seen their auto insurance rates go down, people got people to gotta love that. You see your ICBC premiums go down. Who doesn't like that? But if you suffer a catastrophic injury in an accident, how is that working out for you? Have a listen to this here now. You're going to hear about a man named Tim Schober from near lives near Victoria. This is a guy who was a practicing lawyer who was injured in an accident. He was riding his bike. He got hit by another vehicle. Suffered a catastrophic injury that changed his life. He's not happy with no-fault auto insurance. 
You're going to hear him here. Also, this report from Global News reporter Catherine Urquhart. Have a listen to this. I went from being a very healthy, active person uh, into a being a quadriplegic. Now, Schober is launching a constitutional challenge of ICBC's no-fault insurance, which offers limited benefits and doesn't allow him to sue for compensation. Does not provide adequate amount of money for my uh, caregivers' pay. So the amount of care that I get has been reduced from what it should be to match what ICBC's cap is. Okay, that's a heartbreaking case for sure. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Aaron Sutherland, Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. They have a brand new report out on year one of No Fault. Aaron Sutherland, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me today. Okay, Aaron, let's talk about the findings in the report that you've put out. ICBC is pushing back on on some of your, your findings here, but tell me the highlights here in the report that you issued yesterday. Yeah, so look, we all know ICBC has had significant financial problems in recent years, uh, and we've seen those dissipate. Uh, we've seen an improvement in, in driving rates. You know, that's 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 a good thing. But it's yeah. how that all came to about, about that is really what we should be looking at, because it, it wasn't like ICBC looked internally and found any efficiencies or we have a, a, a better ICBC. In fact, quite the opposite. Rather than doing that, like any other company would, they have simply slashed the benefits they're providing to drivers in terms of, you know, the, the benefits they get to recover. Um, so much so that last year, ICBC spent more, which means more of your driver premiums went towards ICBC's own internal operating costs, things like salaries, uh, benefits, commissions, and taxes, then went to helping drivers recover from their accidents. And that needs to be held to account, and that needs to be called into question. Why is ICBC spending more on itself than helping drivers recover? Um, no fault. We've seen a huge reduction uh, in claims, and yet we haven't seen any improvement in ICBC's internal operations as a result. Okay, what about the amount of money going out to people who are injured in crashes? I mean, I think this is the bottom line for most people. Like the government, when the government rolled this out, they said, look, we're going to take away your right to sue for damages here in many cases. Cut those, law- cut those lawyers out of the middle. But the money we save is going to flow to people who are injured, right? So how much, how much money is going to drive people who are injured in crashes? Yeah, so last year, um, we saw a reduction of about 30% in terms of what ICBC provides to drivers uh, when they're injured. Uh, despite the fact that collisions were up substantially over that time. So there were more accidents, yet yet much less going to drivers. Um, and, you know, ICBC will say, well, yeah, but more of it, more of, you know, more of our claims are going to drivers themselves and we've cut out the lawyers. And that's fine. But, you know, it's a little bit of like ICBC shrinkflation where they have shrunk the total pie. And yes, they're giving you proportionally more, but in, in total terms, you are getting much, much less. And that's what people should be well aware of. That's why we are seeing more and more stories about drivers, cyclists, pedestrians being told by ICBC, you are cut off. This is all you get. Uh, and there's no recourse for you if you disagree. Yeah. That's the real concern. And the, 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 the issue with no fault is it puts all the power in the hands of our monopoly and people have no choice and no recourse if they disagree. Okay, well, well, hang on a sec. I thought the government said there would be recourse. You could go to the Fairness Commissioner or you could go to one of these civil resolution tribunals. Can you not? Or you could go to the Ombudsman. So 
you could go to the civil resolution tribunal and stand up yourself Uh. with the limited experience you have against ICBC and the $1.6 billion it puts into its own operations to make sure they can fight you uh, at every step of the way. And we're seeing how that plays out. We're seeing drivers being told no. We're seeing people saying, you know, they are injured. They aren't getting what they need to recover. And ICBC is turning, turning them down. And it's, it's really unfortunate. Um, and it's, it's most unfortunate that they have no other, no other way to go. They have no other choice. We think, at a minimum, if you don't like the product or service you're getting from ICBC, you should be able to take your business elsewhere. Um, you know, that stands whether it's no fault or any other system. Okay. Speaking of Aaron Sutherland, Insurance Bureau of Canada, Aaron, as you know, ICBC yesterday put out a statement saying that the report that came out from your group was misleading in their words. They say the system is working well. People are being compensated fairly if they're injured in a crash. And they say that one of the reasons why maybe less money is being paid out overall is because they've taken the lawyers out of the mix, right? Like, how much how much money has been reduced in, in payments to lawyers because you can't sue anymore? It's got to be huge. Yeah, I mean, no surprise there. Government monopoly says government monopoly is doing really well. <laughs> and everybody's happy. And, and don't believe anything you're reading in the media or hearing from others who actually get into an accident. Um, so, you know, yeah, no question. They have cut legal fees out of the system. Uh, right. I think previously they said about 80% uh, of their total claims costs went to drivers and the other 20, I guess, went to lawyers. Now they're saying it's up to about 95. And again, right. proportionately you are getting more, but in whole, like, you know, grand totals, drivers are getting much, much less because they have shrunk the total pie. And so they don't dispute the fact that they're spending more on their own internal operations than they are providing to drivers, that more of your dollar is supporting ICBC and its staff and its salaries and all of those sorts of things than is actually coming back to you when you're injured. So we've switched into a system that seems geared towards sustaining ICBC and its own Leviathan rather than actually helping us recover. And that calls car insurance into question because the purpose Mm. of a car insurance system isn't to sustain some kind of government monopoly. It's to make sure you get what you need to recover following an accident. And that is very much up in the air at this point. Okay, let's listen to the other side of it here. I'll play a clip here from David Eby. Now, this is going back to when he first announced the Snowfault Auto Insurance System for British Columbia. And he was the minister responsible at the time for ICBC. Of course, in about two weeks here, he's going to be sworn in as the new premier of British Columbia. But here's what he said at the time, and I'll get your thoughts. Here he is describing how this no-fault auto insurance system is going to work well for drivers who were injured in crashes. Have a listen, and I'll get your thoughts. This bill enables changes that will deliver lower insurance rates for BC drivers, saving people an average of 20% or about $400 on their vehicle insurance. These changes will introduce dramatically improved care and recovery benefits should someone become injured in an automobile crash, providing them with up to at least $7.5 million in care and recovery benefits for as long as they need it. And wage loss coverage as well, that is 60% higher than it is today. This bill will eliminate the need for British Columbians to hire a lawyer to get the care they require to get back to living their lives as they did before their crash. Okay, so you heard him say there that ICBC premiums would go down 20%. I don't think you can dispute that. I mean, premiums have gone down quite a bit, have, correct? Oh, there's no disputing that. Premiums yeah. have come down, right. and that's good. But I would question, is it good enough? Because we haven't seen... Uh, any improvements from ICBC themselves. They have simply found savings by cutting what we get as drivers. 
and, you know, they still suffer, you know, from the same old challenges they've always had. And again, I think the evidence today speaks for itself. ICBC is spending almost $200 million more per year on their own internal operations than they are on the benefits they provide to drivers. That tells, well, you know, we've got that flipped. That doesn't make any sense. Okay, but... You know, they're also paying out a lot less to the lawyers that they wanted to cut out of the mix here. And you heard in that clip that we played from EB, he said, look, the way the system is going to work now, you're injured in a crash. There could be a big pool of money there available to you, up to $7.5 million if you suffer some catastrophic injury. Wage loss if you if you miss work because of an auto accident injury. Your wage loss compensation is 60% higher. Is that not... True? Well, they actually made it unlimited, I think. They said, get to hell with the, or to heck with the 7.5 million, excuse me. Uh, we'll make it unlimited. Unlimited, but right. Nobody okay. can access those unlimited benefits because Why of not? the sublimits within there. If an ICBC hmm. adjuster tells you you're only entitled to five or 10 physio appointments, it doesn't matter that theoretically those could be unlimited. The adjuster has all the power. They determine yeah. when they say no. And that's why we're seeing people coming forward saying, hey, why am I being denied? Uh, benefits that I need to recover because my adjuster is saying to me that they know better than I do. And that's really the difference between no fault and most of the other systems in the country is that it puts all the power into ICBC's hands. Um, And, you know, that's how they find the savings because they have the ability to say no, um, despite, you know, what those who are actually injured uh, in those collisions might have to say or how they may be feeling or how their recovery may be going. All right. Talking year one, no-fault auto insurance. My guest, Aaron Sutherland, Insurance Bureau of Canada. Tons of phone calls. Brian in Chilliwack. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. We were in an accident uh, recently. Just right away, my wife had a broken wrist. They phoned, and the adjuster said, I'm going to send someone to see what you can what you're capable of doing with your right hand. She is right-handed. And then she went on holidays for three weeks. My wife never got a phone call back. She was told that she could could hire somebody to help her with. ICBC would pay up to $35 an hour, but if you found someone yourself, they would only pay up to $20 an hour. They were gonna send an adjuster to have a look or to see what she was capable of doing. They didn't send anyone out to see her till six weeks after the accident. Okay. And do you feel, do you feel like you were treated fairly by ICBC? Absolutely not. We were ignored by ICBC hmm. for the first month. Okay. Did you finally, did she finally get some help? She got some help and then she was told no, because you run your own daycare at home we're not providing any financial support for you after being told that they would. Now it took her that long to get into physio. She's had three physios and now they're saying you can't have any more physio. You've used up Mm. your appointments. Okay, Brian, thank you for that. I hope, I hope your wife has a full recovery here. Well, there's one person who's unhappy with the system, Paul and Burnaby. Paul, what do you think? They're small business people. And, uh, you know, we run our companies and we put a lot of money back into our companies. Like I, I only draw very minimal from my company because it's a small little growing company. If I have an accident now, ICBC is going to say, look at 
you're, you're, we're only going to compensate for your wage. Yet my earning power, if I'm, you know, crippled, you know, I'm lost. The company's in trouble. So I'm saving $400 a year, which is about 36 bucks a month. But yet my, you know, my coverage isn't what it used to be. So this, hmm. this, is, this is completely, you know, it's, no, I can pick up private insurance, but it's so expensive. So some knucklehead can, you know, make an accident, could cost me my life, my business, and my compensation is virtually nothing. Okay, Paul, thank you. Well, okay, let me go to Aaron. I don't think the compensation is virtually nothing. Like ICBC is saying that the benefits have gone up if you're injured, correct? Again, when ICBC says that, they're talking about uh, the, the total that you, you could receive. But what you're yeah. hearing from the two callers here is some of the sublimits they put in below that. And so, um, you know, there's really significant challenges there, and you have very little recourse uh, if you disagree with what ICBC is saying. And again, it's good that they have reduced prices, but is it good yeah. enough? And I mean that both in are we getting what we need to recover, both right. physically and financially, and are we paying an appropriate price or could we get it cheaper if we let somebody else in here and didn't, you know, force everyone to simply purchase their car insurance uh, okay. from ICBC's monopoly? Because the more things change with this company, the more they seem to stay the same. Squeeze another call in. John in Kelowna. John, you only got about 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. I recently called ICBC General Inquirers asking why when I'm renewing my insurance is the minimum 200000 liability, but I can get a million, two million, five million. What's the point of buying and paying the extra premium for the extra coverage when we're not allowed to sue anybody? So I'd like your guest, Aaron, to answer, why is ICBC collecting super extra amount of money and not having to give anything back in return? Aaron. And by the way, I love this guy. He's a, he's absolutely fantastic uh, guest on your show today. Okay, Aaron, thank you for the call. Aaron, you got, we only got 30 seconds left here. Go ahead. Uh, thanks so much for that. Uh, a lot of that relates to... Uh, things like property damage or accidents that occur outside the province where you could still be sued and you may need uh, some of that coverage. But again, whatever they're selling you, the question should always be asked, why do I have to purchase this from this monopoly? Why can't I be given a choice to see if someone else could provide it um, more effectively and more cheaply for me and potentially give me a better product as well? And thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. All right, let's keep talking about the stresses and strains on the BC healthcare system. Now, we talked earlier about the lengthening wait times for cancer services in the province. We've got wait times for medical imaging. How about some of the other challenges that people are seeing and experiencing out there? What if you've got a kid at home and your kid is sick and you want to get some Tylenol or Advil, a children's pain formula? They're hearing lots of stories about shortages of these particular medications. This has been flagged by the Liberals at the legislature. Let's talk now to Liberal MLA. Todd Stone represents Kamloops South Thompson at the legislature. Todd, thanks for coming on again. Uh, Happy to be here, Mike. Okay, so let's talk about the shortage of these medications. People may have heard a lot about this. It's not just in British Columbia. We're hearing about this across Canada. It's a problem in the United States as well. What are you hearing? Well, it, it's uh, it's been a, a growing issue for the last number of months. Uh, store shelves in pharmacies uh, across British Columbia, and, and you're, you're correct, across Canada, uh, are increasingly empty when it comes to uh, children's uh, pain medication like Tylenol and Advil. And obviously, uh, we're all hearing the stories about uh, just a, a very significant increase in 
uh, you know, colds and flus and, and things that, uh, you know, predominantly um, uh, hit, hit kids uh, pretty hard at this time of the year as we're into fall and soon into winter. And uh, parents are scrambling. They're, they're looking for these pain medications for their kids and they just can't seem to access them. So our point in asking this in the legislature yesterday was to, uh, to get uh, some sense of, uh, of um, re- in a reaction from the, the Minister of Health as to what the, the provincial government's actually doing, um, obviously in conjunction with the federal government. But what, what actions are, are being taken to, uh, uh, to, to make this a, a much higher priority so that parents don't have to uh, stress for much longer looking for these medications? Okay, well, the minister says he's working on it. He's working with the federal government. He also points out there's a private sector supply issue going on here. And let's play a little listen uh, to what Adrian Dix, the health minister, had to say to you yesterday on this precise point yesterday. So here's Adrian Dix. Let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. Some of these issues are issues everywhere in the world. They're issues throughout the United States. They're issues throughout Canada and in all jurisdictions in Canada. Health authorities, especially our teams dealing with children around the province, are taking steps, of course, to provide supply. But some of this is about private sector supply chains. Okay, so you heard him there say, like, look, it's not just here. This is happening. This is happening in other jurisdictions. A lot of it's due with private sector supply of these medications. But he said he is working on it. What exactly is he doing, you know? He's actually doing, and and we had these exact uh, uh, types of supply chain challenges during the pandemic, uh, whether that was uh, you know uh, personal protective equipment or masks or uh, you know even even uh, poultry products and eggs and all those kinds of things. There were there were issues left, right, and center. What we did see uh, during the pandemic was a much higher degree of urgency uh, in in taking action and trying to unlock some of those uh, supply chains and and a lot of that was done provincially a lot of that was done federally uh so what i uh, what i had hoped to hear yesterday in asking these questions was a response from the minister that uh, emphasized a heck of a lot more uh urgency to uh, to what he was actually uh, doing behind the scenes we didn't really hear that um at minimum i think the province has an obligation to step up their communication uh, with parents uh, to make it clear that uh, not only do they re- recognize that this is a growing a problem, uh, but that uh, there are specific steps that, that the provincial government is pursuing. So at minimum, we, we hope that that, uh, that level of urgency ratchets up uh, from, a, from a government communications perspective in the coming days. Yeah. Yeah, we've heard a lot of disturbing stories uh, around the, across the country about surging number of kids who are getting respiratory illnesses. Uh, we're seeing some strains on pediatric wards and, in provinces across the country, short supply of, of kids, Advil and Tylenol. So we're not alone in, in this. But it was interesting, I thought, to hear the prime minister this week say he's aware of this, but he also points the finger at, at the provinces saying health care delivery is provincial jurisdiction. Let's have another listen to Adrian Dix, the health minister, responding to you in the legislature yesterday on this issue. And then I'll get your thoughts. It is absolutely a priority. For, uh, for parents and all those in the system. Some of these are issues in terms of supply that we have worked on in other issues, and he is well aware because it affected his riding. We have consistently worked during the pandemic when there have been shortages to get care and medication to the people who need it. But this is an international problem, Honourable Speaker, in terms of supply, and one that we have to do everything we can. Okay, so he says they're doing everything they can. You, are you buying well, that? 
Yeah, no, I'm not. Uh, I mean, I, again, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, be too harsh here, but uh, the the reality is there there are not shortages uh, across much of the United States, and and not in Washington State. It, it it pains me as a parent myself to hear of other parents having to cross the border uh, to try and access uh, you know Tylenol for their kids. Uh, we 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 do know that uh, if you remember, not that long ago, there was there was a shortage, similar shortages with respect to baby formula. Uh, we raised yeah. uh, those those issues uh, in the legislature, and lo and behold, within a few weeks of of uh, shining a bright light on that, lighting a fire under under the the health minister, we we saw that those baby sh- uh, formula shortages start to to ease off. So all we're saying is, what specific steps are you taking um, to to demonstrate to parents that this is a really high priority for you uh, to, uh, to 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 not just work with the federal government, but reach out to manufacturers directly and and see uh, you know, what is it that the province can do to unlock some of yeah. these supply chains. So there's a lot of families depending on it. Speaking of Liberal MLA Todd Stone about some of the challenges in healthcare in BC right now. Uh, talking about the shortage of kids Tylenol and Advil. Now that's one thing, kids medication. But then you've got the, the very disturbing numbers coming out about the number of people who are waiting for critical healthcare services, notably for cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment. I mean, the BC cancer system is lauded, I think, rightly around the world. But man, some of these wait times we're hearing about now. These are troubling. This affects a lot of people, a lot of families. I mean, some of the numbers of people who are having delays to see an oncologist, uh, delays for screening. Have a listen to this here now. This is one that was highlighted in the legislature this week as well. You're going to hear from a cancer patient here now, Farrah Kruger. She's a nurse. She has skin cancer. And she's concerned about the delays in treatment that she's seeing in the system. Have a listen to this as Global News reporter Kamal Karamali. There is a number of positive notes here. And it's been a growing concern for Farah Kruger. My tumors are growing. Um, I feel it every day as the pain increases. A terrifying eight-month journey diagnosed with skin cancer and trying to navigate a healthcare system bogged down in delays. She's still left with no treatment plan. I feel like there's potential for it to become worse and my treatment options to diminish as time goes on. And that's my greatest fear. Okay, I really feel for someone in this position. And I thought this one is particularly poignant given that she's a nurse herself and kind of blowing the whistle, I guess, on the, on the system. Todd Stone, your thoughts? Well, unfortunately, these are, are, are real uh, people, real stories that we're hearing about uh, uh, virtually every single day. And it's a reflection of, of the challenges uh, in, the, in, in the ability of people to, to access the cancer care that they need, both on the, the front-end diagnosis part, but then waiting for the, the appropriate treatment. Uh, we, we, we profiled a number of these uh, unfortunate uh, situations that people are facing in the legislature yesterday. We, we talked about um, a woman whose mother has cancer and, and, and her mother has six months to live, and she's waiting for an appointment with uh, her oncologist, and she was told, just last week that uh, she won't be able to get in to see the oncologist for three months, but they've only given her six months to live. Um, That, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's not acceptable by any definition. Uh, We, we, we basically made it clear yesterday uh, that the health minister and the provincial government have got to do better when it comes to cancer care. We have, uh, 
the the average wait times for radiation treatment uh, are now the longest here in British Columbia, the longest in the country. Um, that that has happened over the last uh, five and a half years. Uh, uh, 80, 88% of patients in BC are, are able to start radiation therapy within four weeks. Um, uh, this makes British Columbia the poorest uh, performing jurisdiction in Canada. Uh, radi- radiologists, as you you will know well, recently uh, wrote the, the health minister and said there is a, a tsunami of late stage cancer cases that are coming through the system that that we're not even aware of yet. Why? Because uh, it, it now takes so long for people on the front end to get the, those critical diagnostics done, uh, and by the time they're getting them done, their cancer has progressed to quite significantly, and that changes the obviously the reality fundamentally for people in terms of. Uh, their, sur- their, their survivability uh, rate with whatever cancer they have and, and what type of treatment they're, they're going to receive. So um, the, the, the system is, uh, is collapsing, um, you know, in, in many facets, particularly with respect to cancer care. Uh, the government's got to step up with, uh, with an action plan to address well, this and do it right away. Well, what precisely are you calling on them to do? Because, you know, this was... A, a political fight in the legislature yesterday. You had the health minister on his feet through, throughout the entire question period, and his consistent response was, "We're putting, we're spending records amount, record amounts of money. Like so, we're we're piling millions and millions of dollars of additional resources into the system. I mean, what more can they do? I, there was a very poignant moment I thought yesterday where Kevin Falcon, the Liberal leader, said, "Look, you're measuring the wrong thing. It's not about how much money you're pouring into the system." You should be looking at the measurable outcomes, uh, how the system is performing with these wait times, which, which I thought was a great point. But how are they supposed to improve this if they're already spending money like crazy? Well, but I think that is exactly the point. Uh, it, it, it shouldn't uh, and isn't always about uh, shouldn't be and isn't always about how much money is being spent. Clearly, uh, it, it, we know that that has been the case in terms of announcements after announcements that the government's made. Uh, it's not uh, it's not making any difference when you look at the outcomes. Uh, people are waiting far too long. Uh, they're, they're, we need more uh, radiologists uh, in, in this province. We need uh, we need to look at being creative about how do we how do we um, open up uh, more capacity that that exists uh, uh, with overtime and, and so forth. We need uh, uh, this is a government that still hasn't trained a, a single uh, new uh, hasn't opened up an additional uh, uh, training spot for doctors in British Columbia. Uh, they, they still refuse to sit down with nurses and address the issues that nurses are feeling uh, on the front lines, the stress and burnout there. So there's a whole wide range of, uh, of things that the government could and should be doing. Uh, what they seem to think is the solution is just to write a bigger check uh, and, and dump that into the system. That That is not, not working at all if, if one cares about what matters most, and that's, uh, that's okay. results for, for patients. Thanks for coming on today with your thoughts on it. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. 911.